This is a presentation from Narara Valley Baptist Church, a church that's desperate for God and passionate for people. Aftermath. The resurrection. We spent a lot of the Easter lead-up talking about, thinking about, reflecting on the journey of Jesus towards the cross. And we thought it would only be right to take a few more weeks off the back of the Easter weekend to spend a few weeks thinking about the resurrection. And where, where does the story go next? Uh, I think there's a, there's a sort of a mistake, potentially, that we sometimes make in the way that we think about Easter, that we think it's all about the cross. Look, here it is. We put it in the middle of our stage. This is the focal point. This is, this is the whole center of our faith, this cross moment where Jesus goes and dies on the cross. Oh, yeah, and by the way, he rose again. But anyway, the cross. We don't want to do that. We want to spend a few weeks thinking about what, is the, what are the ramifications of the resurrection. Travis and I particularly had a lot of trouble thinking of a good word for that. We didn't want to call the series Ramifications. So we went with Aftermath, which I said sounded kind of negative. I feel like it's like a post-apocalypse thing. You know, like everyone's dead and there's a few survivors and this is the aftermath. This is like a good aftermath, not a bad one. So just keep that in mind. I'm sure you know that already, right? You know it's good news. Uh, I thought I'd talk to you about the Bible, this book here. Or maybe you've got one with you. Uh, Maybe you've got yours on your smartphone. I love this book. I love this book. Maybe you love this book. Maybe you read it every day. Maybe it's just something you uh, you dip into occasionally in a setting like this. You might pull out a Bible, uh, but in in the middle of your week, it's kind of not, not in the forefront of your mind. Maybe this is a book you find really difficult to get through. Some of it's really complicated. Some of it's a bit dry, uh, a bit, can I say it's a bit boring? Am I allowed to say that? Okay, good. It can be a challenge. I want to tell you about the time in my life that I think of when I think of a time when I really was impacted by reading the Bible. And this is the time in my life I shared a little tiny bit about uh, with some of our seniors a couple of weeks ago at the senior service on a Thursday. In 2010, I went on this incredible adventure where I spent six weeks living and working on Christmas Island. Uh, I don't know if you know Christmas Island, so I've given you a map, so now you know where it is. You might notice that Christmas Island needs to have underneath the phrase Christmas Island in brackets the word Australia. Do you know why it has that word there? Because believe it or not, considering how far away from the rest of Australia it is, this is part of our country. It's a long way offshore, isn't it? Uh, This little island that kind of looks like it should belong to Indonesia, uh, but it actually belongs to Australia. And what it's famous for are these little red crabs. There's like millions of these crabs on this island. No, that's not what you were thinking, was it? The thing it's famous for is the detention center. And that's why I was there. I was there living on Christmas Island and working as an English teacher teaching the detainees in the detention centre for six weeks. 
And while I was there, uh, I lived in a big share house with a bunch of other volunteers. Some of them were English teachers. Some of them were just volunteering to try and make detention a little less painful for people. Um, And we lived in this big share house uh, on the island. And, uh, yeah, my real purpose for being there was to give a little bit of English language instruction uh, to these guys who'd come from all different parts of the world. So I had a big kind of mixture in the classroom. Uh, Some of them could speak almost no English, teaching English to a group of people who can't speak any English when you can't speak any of their language is complicated, but it is doable. I had, I had the training, I knew how to do it, uh, and it was this amazing adventure. And I mean, picture it. There I am, 5,300 kilometers from home, I looked it up, so far away from all of my family and my friends. Uh, I wasn't going to church, I wasn't uh, with my connect group doing a Bible study every week. Uh, I was completely with a whole bunch of strangers in this share house. I didn't know any of them before I got there. And so, I was completely free to reinvent myself and be whoever I wanted to be. I didn't have to live up to people's expectation of me. I could just be whatever I wanted. I wonder if any of you have ever had that kind of experience. It's pretty unusual. Usually we live our lives connected with people who know us, with our family, with our friends, with our church, and yet here I was given this opportunity to be anyone. Those six weeks uh, really changed me a lot in a lot of ways. I won't go into all of them this morning. I just want to focus on this one aspect because I think that these six weeks ultimately led me kind of quite directly to being in full-time ministry, to doing what I'm doing right now. And I know that's kind of weird, and I can fill in the gaps for you if you want later. But anyway, here I am. I had complete license to reinvent myself. I didn't have to be a quote-unquote good Christian. Uh, I didn't have to kind of prove to anyone how close to God I was. Who would they, why would they care what kind of image I portrayed? I could do or say anything I like. I could, I could be a good Christian. I could have been a mediocre Christian. I could have pretended not to be a Christian. They, they didn't know I came with that identity. I probably would have fit in better if I just pretended not to be a Christian. And you know what I did? Every morning, I woke up early, and I got a bowl of cereal, and I went and sat out on the balcony in the tropics. You've got to sit outside. Sat out on the balcony with my Bible, and I read and I prayed every morning. And I wasn't doing it to prove to my housemates how good a Christian I was. They were all asleep anyway, although some, they'd come out in dribs and drabs while I was sitting there. But I wanted to read it. I felt I needed to read it every day. And my housemates, they'd come out bleary-eyed and they'd see me sitting out there on the balcony and they'd, they wouldn't interrupt me. They'd, they'd respect my religious time or whatever they thought I was doing. But they knew that this was something I was doing because I needed it, because I wanted it, because it was real for me. Why did I need the Bible so badly in that six weeks of my life? Because I think I needed it more then than I had the week before at home. 
Each day in the detention center, I was faced with the brokenness of the world. The heartache of men who were locked up far away from their homes, their wives, their children, their their homelands racked by civil war or normal war or dictatorship. Some of them were full of hope and others had all but given up hope. And each day, one of them would volunteer some aspect of his story to me. Uh, They wanted to share, not all of them, but some of them really wanted to share where they'd come from and and how they'd got here. And the stories were so hard to comprehend, the, the trauma and the challenge that these guys had been through. And how was I going to face that without my family, without my friends, without my church, without my connect group, all on my own with a bunch of strangers in a share house? I had to turn to God. I had to know that there is more to life than that brokenness and injustice and suffering and cruelty, to know that there is a greater hope, even when all hope seems lost. And the greatest hope is found in the resurrection. In Luke chapter 24, Uh, We read about the resurrection and its aftermath. Uh, And in this particular passage we're looking at this morning, it kicks off in verse 13. And it's the story of two people walking along a road. Well, at least there are two at first. Uh, One is called Cleopas, and he is a, a disciple of Jesus, but not one of the 12 disciples. He's kind of on that next, next sphere. But he is, you know, he hasn't abandoned Jesus completely. Uh, And he's there with a a companion uh, that scholars think is probably his wife Mary. In John 19.25, there is a Mary who is called the wife of Cleopas. And she's actually at the foot of the cross with some of the other women while Jesus is dying on the cross. So, put two and two together. Seems likely, I like that theory, it's not necessarily, certainly she's not named in Luke. But yeah, certainly these are two followers of Jesus. And as they're walking along the road, uh, they are despondent, they are depressed, and they are trying to make sense of what is going on. They're talking about everything that's happened with Jesus and this movement that they were part of, with these disciples of Jesus and all the hope that they'd put in him and how he died on that cross and how there were rumours that something had happened, that the body was gone from the tomb. Anyway, a man is walking along the road and he catches up with the two of them. I guess they were walking pretty slowly. Uh, We all walk a bit slower when we're feeling sad. Uh, And this man catches up and he says... What are you talking about? And they stop in the middle of the road. Uh, They can't bear to take another step just thinking about the weight of everything that has happened over the last week, over the last couple of years. They say, Cleopas says, you must be the only person around Jerusalem who doesn't know the things 
that have happened there these last few days? What things, he asks innocently. About Jesus, they reply. And they give this rundown of the story. It's this nice little summary of the whole Jesus thing. They say Jesus was from Nazareth, he was a prophet, he was powerful in word and deed. The chief priests and Jewish authorities handed him over to be condemned to death. They crucified him. We were hoping he was the Messiah, the Redeemer of Israel, but now, well, this is the third day after this happened. And some of our women have amazed us. They went to his tomb this morning and he wasn't there and they said they'd had a vision of an angel who said he was alive, but that, that's impossible, right? Some of our companions, which is Peter and John, went to the tomb and they verified what the women had said. There is definitely no body in the tomb. No one has seen Jesus. And this stranger to them, Luke fills us in, this is Jesus. But he's incognito, they don't know they're talking to him. I can't help but think he must have been laughing inside and trying to keep a straight face as they talk about Jesus. And he's like, it's me. But he doesn't let them in on it. Instead he says this, and I want to read it word for word. How foolish you are. And how slow to believe all the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. He preached a sermon. This is the first sermon about the resurrection. The first sermon after Easter. Unfortunately, Luke doesn't actually give us verbatim the sermon. Instead, he gives us this one-sentence, vague summary. Beginning with Moses and the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures, hand wave, hand wave, hand wave, concerning himself. I really want to know what he actually said. Which scriptures did he quote? What, what did this sermon sound like? And, and how did it make sense to Cleopas and, I guess, Mary. It sounds like he's given them a whole tour of the Old Testament, from Genesis right the way up to Malachi. That he's explained this whole story of the Bible from the very start to the very end, at least for their Old Testament end. Moses and the Prophets that the whole story leads up to this very day, this very moment. Jesus truly was the Messiah. His death wasn't a terrible, unexpected tragedy that should make them despair. This was exactly what God had intended to happen. And it wasn't the end of the story. Jesus and Cleopas and Mary arrive in the town of Emmaus, where they were headed. And Cleopas and Mary invite their new friend to stay for dinner. And as they sit around the table, this stranger, their companion from the road, he takes charge of the meal. He's the guest, but he takes charge anyway. And he's the one who says grace. He gives thanks to God, and he takes a loaf of bread, and he breaks it and shares it with them. And suddenly the penny drops. This is Jesus, their Lord and Messiah, their Savior, their friend, their teacher. 
He's not dead. He is risen. And just like that, he leaves them. He's gone. He disappears from their sight. Luke tells it in a lovely little, almost paradoxical way. Their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he disappeared from their sight. (laughs) It's like this moment where they see who he really is and then he's gone. I like that. It's a cool sentence. And they asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? There is something wonderful, incredible, surprising and hope-filled about this moment. The resurrection of Jesus made apparent to these disciples. And this hope is not just found in the truth and the fact that there is a resurrection, but it is also found in the scriptures. Do you notice that? Somehow it was, it was these two things that caused their hearts to burn within them. The presence of the resurrected Jesus and the scriptures as he opened them. I believe that uh, we can still experience that heart-burning thing that happens in this story, the incredible power of hope. I mean, I've experienced that. That's the thing that got me through those six weeks on Christmas Island. It still gets me through. There is a resurrection-shaped hope that is found all through the Scriptures, from Genesis to Revelation. Cleopas and Mary may well have been reading the Scriptures their whole lives before this day, and somehow there is something Jesus does in His sermon that I really wish we had the script for, because I would preach it to you. Something in his sermon that makes their hearts burn. The resurrection hope. I still think that it is possible to read this book as a dry, dusty, outdated old historical relic. And there are lots of people today who read it, and that's how it sounds. And that's what they think it is. A bunch of stories about a people who lived in another time, far removed from my life, from my struggles, from my experience. There's there's nothing in here about the internet or your smartphone. There's nothing about living in suburbia, having a bank account, worrying about interest rates. None of those things were invented back then. But look a little closer. This is a story of resurrection hope from cover to cover. It's a story where God acknowledges the world is broken and things are wrong. I find that comforting. That sort of sounds strange, doesn't it, to read about the brokenness of humanity in this book. People lie, people steal, people kill. That's just the first few chapters. People abuse one another, 
People fail to love, fail to care, fail to give even basic human dignity to other people. God doesn't pretend that that's not your experience. God doesn't pretend that that's not what the world is like. He's filled this book with those stories. In that way, it's a story about death. And yet, time after time, right the way through, in Genesis and Exodus and every book in the Old Testament and all the books in the New, God has a purpose. God has a goal. The story doesn't end with the tragedy. There is an aftermath. The resurrection changes everything. If I had to guess, let's do some guessing. Here are some ideas I have of stories that Jesus might have drawn Cleopatra and Mary's attention to in his sermon that I wish we had. Jacob steals from his brother Esau, and Esau chases him away, and these brothers are estranged for years. And then Jacob is welcomed back by his brother Jacob's son Joseph is sold into slavery by his brothers. And when his brothers come asking for help, he forgives them. And through Joseph, God provides for his people in the famine. Moses leads God's people out of Egypt by the blood of a sacrificial lamb through the middle of the sea on dry land. From death to life. Jericho falls without a battle. The child David defeats the mighty warrior Goliath. God's people are defeated, the temple destroyed, they're taken into exile in Babylon. And while they're there, Daniel comes out of the lion's den still alive. His friends come out of the fiery furnace alive. God brings them back from exile when so many other nations in that time just cease to exist and get subsumed into the empire. God makes life come alive out of death again and again and again. Victory out of defeat. A people where there was no people. And at the pinnacle is Jesus the very Son of God, the one who suffered and died. And on the third day, the stone was rolled away and the tomb sat empty and the disciples were confused. But they shouldn't have been. If they really knew the Scriptures, they shouldn't have been confused at all. That's why Jesus says to these poor disciples on the road, how foolish are you? Don't you read the scriptures? Don't you know these stories? God is a God of resurrection, a God who is making everything right by a power so far above and beyond our understanding. How can we who follow him be filled with anything but hope? Is your heart burning yet? I want to leave you with some homework. It's good to have homework, isn't it? Especially in the school holidays. 
No one else is giving you homework this week, so it's up to me. Read your Bible. Bet you knew that was going to be the homework, didn't you? That's my challenge. Read it. Just read it. I don't mind which bit you want to read. Uh, I know some people are a big fan of the New Testament. If that's you, maybe, maybe read something from the Old Testament. Challenge yourself. Or maybe read your favorite book, the one that you just keep coming back to again and again. Maybe you want to read Genesis and start at the beginning. Maybe you want to read a gospel. Luke, we've been reading Luke. You could go back to the beginning of Luke, enjoy the Christmas story, all that stuff. Uh, Maybe you want to read a letter like Romans or Ephesians or James. There's a lot of stuff in there that's pretty helpful. And as you read it, whichever bit you want to dip into this week, the homework is not just to read it, but to read it and see if you can spot the resurrection. Even if you're not reading Luke chapter 24, see if you can see the echoes coming through the hope and the rescue of God. That's number one. Homework number two, share it with someone. You could share it with the person you're sitting next to, send them a text during the week. Uh, You could share it uh, with someone who doesn't read the Bible and say, I was reading the Bible this week. Have you ever read the Bible? And they'd say, no, isn't it? A boring, old, dry and dusty book, completely irrelevant to my life? Well, no, let me tell you. Actually, that could be good. Share it with someone. Warm their heart, just as Jesus opened the Scriptures and shared them with Cleopas and Mary. They're your two bits of homework. You can't do number two without doing number one. We're good? Make sense? You've got your homework. This has been a presentation from Narara Valley Baptist Church, a church that's desperate for God and passionate for people. To continue the conversation, we invite you to join us Sundays at 9.30am and 5pm or on our website at www.nvbc.info.